And this is Quite Like, a podcast. Well, hello, podcasters. Uh, welcome to episode 14 uh, with me, Rory Forbes. And me, Tim Dedman. So, Tim, how have you been? I've been very well, thank you, Rory. And I. what about yourself? Yeah, um, a rude health, I would have to say. Um, although I think it's more important to always check in on your health, given recent events. So uh, how's the recovery program going? What, what have they got you doing to uh, in- ensure a successful recuperation? Recovery program is going well. There, there's four phases I learned this week. There's in hospital. There's the six weeks when you come out of hospital where you kind of are going from five minutes walking a day up to you know your normal stuff, and I'm back there. Stage three is then going to what has variously been called geriatric PE, um, circuit training by the optimistic, and one or two things that are probably not repeatable on a family podcast, but basically gentle circuit training with people in a similar boat in Newport. And I'm do- doing that. I'm now on week two. And then uh, we- <laughs> stage four is called the rest of your life. So they do some education sessions uh, on four of the eight weeks of stage three. And these are on nutrition, exercise, stress management and something else. Uh, probably pharmaceuticals and um so you know we had one of those on stress which was very interesting and informative and um you mean, you mean pharmaceuticals what did i say pharmaceuticals would that be, that's agricult- probably that's probably products for your nails isn't that's it right, agricultural laborers uh, well, let's, let's put well you and i probably are quite close to being agricultural laborers <laughs> um <laughs> goodbye <laughs> Well, they're now on the podcast. Um, oh, hello, Ella. Goodbye, Ella. <laughs> um, given the amount of potato activity in this house in the last week, um, we <laughs> you think we ought to start this again? No, no, carry on. This is comedy gold. Um, uh, the studio etiquette, I, I think we should let the podcasters know that we are doing our second Zoom recording. So we're not locked away in our eerie, lofty studio in the West White. I'm in the eerie, lofty studio in the West White, and Tim is in his uh, central belt um, agricultural hotspot of Rookley. Although, according to the politicians, I am actually in West White as well. We're we're in the same constituency. We are in the same constituency. I mean, I I think the border does run very... So Newport is in, but I think Ventnor... Is in the east white. East white yeah, yeah. So do with population density, isn't it? To, get the, to get the numbers port, right, yeah. but I, I suspect it must run possibly along the old railway line. Yeah, which I think would be a, which kind of meets the criteria for which side you are. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we're going to have a conversation later on in this episode around tactical voting and uh, election jiggery pokery. So, uh, yeah. A nice intro to that, Tim. Thank you very much. And studio etiquette. Now that Ella's left the house with Parker for a walk, studio etiquette can can resume. <laughs> yes, and I'm just can, I can look at my pharmaceuticals. <laughs> pharmaceuticals, I love it. I think we've just invented something there. <laughs> I think I'm on 14 tablets a day, or 40, maybe 14 different types of tablet. I I've lost count. Yeah. I've lost the ability to count. I haven't got enough fingers. I'm going to have cuticles. <laughs> um, one of the other reasons for us doing uh, Zoom today is because I've got a, a a medical intervention session. I'm on a pre-diabetes prevention program because my score wasn't right after a blood test. So I'm I'm now having some very interesting educational sessions over in Newport. Um, but I missed 
the last one for prior commitment, but I'm now on an online Teams catch-up. So our logistics wouldn't have worked today with either of us traveling somewhere for, for me hitting uh, the, the, the follow-up replacement session for someone who couldn't get there. So yes, I'm glad you're recovering well. Um, when you described PE and gym work, I I'm, I'm picturing you in white t-shirt, white shorts and black pumps and all the ladies in navy blue knickers. Are you? I am. You really Maybe I shouldn't be. Sure. Are you absolutely sure you don't want to start this one again? I'm giving you another chance. <laughs> no, I'm I'm I'm, Podcasters, I'm thinking I'm thinking of you and the visual imagery. <laughs> um it's so the age range is from 30s to I would guess 80s. Okay. And everybody has had some kind so it is cardio based, so everyone has had some sort of cardio um Activity. Um, I, I, I stupidly assumed that everyone would have had the same thing, but there are you know, the man next sitting next to me at very little prompting opened his shirt to show me his scar for his valve replacement. Wow. And yeah, there, there were quite young people who were born with hereditary conditions that have been treated, and so so that you know there's a wide cross section. Um, what what do we do? So there's a kind of a ten minute warm up, and if you can imagine the. If you can imagine a kind of a gym class teacher who's probably in her mid sixties but still very trim, and you know, so so she barks at us for ten minutes, and we do a kind of a warm up in a big circle. And you know, some people are very much into it, and yeah. they go to the front and choose weights so they can have weights in their hands so that they look a bit more. It's mainly the men, um, a bit tougher. Um, and the ladies gracefully do it. And the men, when we get to anything complicated, they always explain that the, the ladies should do it, but the men shouldn't. So there's a lunge where you thrust your hands, arms forward, but thrust one leg back and tap the toe and bring it forward. Okay. And you do these things gracefully together in sort of synchronicity. But the men all fall over when they try and do the two things together. So, so they counsel that only the ladies should attempt this one because they tend to be far more coordinated. Did you give it a go, though? No, that's true. Well, I sort of gave it a go, but I probably looked more like a robot, a badly programmed robot, you know, doing things where the message was going very slowly up and down to the limbs. and It was uncoordinated and slow. Rather interesting, than interesting. We, we had one exercise to do. It was very much a lecture, an entertaining lecture about health, well-being, diet, and so on, the first um, pre-diabetes program event. But they did have one um, exercise which involved a piece of string. So you had to measure your, excuse me, measure your height as a piece of string and cut the string at your height, fold the string in half, and put the string around, the, the halved string around your waist. And if it met... You're, you're kind of about the right proportion of height to waist. If it didn't meet, you've got some work to do. So um, I'm definitely in the got some work to do department. Yeah, I think a lot of this comes out of those sort of BMI calculations. Yeah. They've realised that there are, and I think the original things that were calculated many years ago, I was reading about who came up with this, and it's a lot longer. I think it may even be in the 19th century. But anyway... Th- it was all this sort of pseudoscience behind it, and they then then apply it. Um, I mean, all I would say is, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're engaging with the classes because you don't want it to happen. And, yeah, you know, to anyone listening out there, if you can avoid it, I would strongly recommend it because there are a number of um, 
unpleasant downbeat things about diabetes. I mean, we joke about it, but it, it's not yeah. great. So and if as you your, can avoid as your it. consultant said about your heart condition or your heart situation, I won't um, stop calling it a condition, but your situation uh, was it wasn't the last three years, Mr. Deadman, it was the previous 50. Um, so kids out there in podcast land, uh, our demographic doesn't hit too many kids, but ch- children start living well, start living wise. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, they'd only be listening to us if they were related to us, wouldn't they? Listen Obviously. to your Uncle Tim. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my my two have both taken the message on board, and I know that at least one of them has um, had, a, had a kind of checkup, and they, they're both increasingly active and both uh, have done kind of couch to 5K type yeah. stuff and are both, you know, kind of pushing on. And when they were here, they went running together. It's really quite impressive and completely the opposite I mean, I, I did I did sporting activities, but not with the kind of the thought and general efforts and better diet that, that they do. And both of them are negligible. I mean, Matt hardly drinks at all, and yeah. Sam is negligible. So you know, yeah. good up on and, you guys. And it's the sustaining of it and keeping it going and keep it regular. And Jane and I have now, in the last four four and a half months, we're swimming three times a week. Um, that's our target. And we hit it most weeks and we've gone from 30 lengths in a session to 50. That's five zero, everybody, uh, lengths. And we're doing that in about 40, 40 minutes or so. So we're finding it relatively straightforward to do and contemplating our next target setting. So it, it can become a little bit obsessive. And I enjoy following your boys on Strava because they do their runs and they do. So on Strava. Um, I've not got any technology that I can take into a wet situation such as a swimming pool, but I don't think the Strava map would look that interesting going 50 times up and down a, a 25 meter pool. There are plenty of them around yeah. um, where, where you so I do. I think that mapping your activity and kind of recording what you do is quite important. So, you know, I, I keep a record. Um, well, in fact, I, I've always kept a manual record, a spreadsheet, but what I do now is I, I set up Google Fit, All right. which is on my phone. I don't do the sleep because you need to have a watch to do that. Ah. But Google Fat, Google Fat, Fat. <laughs> that's Freudian for you. Google Fat, which it will now ever more be known as, records. Um, you, you can capture things like blood pressure, um, height and weight, and and so forth. Um, it also does steps, and it, it has a an algorithm developed by the World Health Organization for heart health. And so it, it kind of does two basic measures a day. One is, have you done your step challenge? But also, have you done this heart health? And that, that's based upon, I guess, raising your um, heart rate over a certain amount of time, a number of times during the day. So that's quite useful, one that I've never had before. So I've, I've started taking more notice of that. Um, because I didn't, I didn't use it before my latest yeah, yeah. episode. So well, you've introduced me to something new because I didn't appreciate there was a Google Fit thing. I am, um, I've been on my Samsung health app, um, Strava, and uh, I now have another app through the pre-diabetes group, which is a company called Xyla X Y L A, and they have a well-being app where you can record weight activity lens etc so obviously you build up a picture but i just love data i think we've talked about this before yeah that's how that's how i got onto google fit because when i was discharged from hospital they put uh, this was um queen alexandra in portsmouth they push an app called xe which is developed by the nhs i had some problems getting onto the app there, there were some issues with the logging in but once i was on 
it seemed to prefer that it pulled its data from something like um, either the I, uh, the Apple one or from Google Fit. So I set up Google Fit, and then I realized that really that rendered XC redundant. Sure. So I didn't bother with that and just used the Google one. Really? Um, yeah. And it, it, it was good. Yeah. And certainly walking-wise, you know, we're, we're back to where we were pre-heart attack, and um, we're doing – I've been walking further actually. I mean, you know, so I've been in the ten to fourteen thousand range at most days, mainly because of the dog. So yes, you know, yeah. Yeah. Cheers, cheers, Parker. What are your good features? Unlike your potato eating, which we'll talk about another time. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it gets you out and out and about plenty. The other thing, the other good news, which you asked about on the last podcast, is I actually had permission last week to get the bike out. So I went and trundled around Rookley and up a few very, very slopey hills. And um, I have a, a trip planned to scrump some apples in Merston. So that'll be this my is, next is, one going a little bit further. This is the black pudding. Indeed, the pudding will ride again. I, I think I think some photographic uh, documentation for the Instagram page would be a uh, uh, welcome. Well, some of me stealing apples, maybe from Merston Station. It's one of these. Um, is it called Back to Nature? The group that looks after the green spaces on Gift. the island. Gift to Gift, nature. Gift to nature. That's it. Ella went to a talk and ever since has been really interested in them and kind of directs me towards their places. And they've planted an orchard or nurtured an orchard on the old railway station site, which is full of apples and pears. Well, and usually, as in September, they invite people to go and. Um, you know, take the windfalls and take take what is there because it needs to be cleared. And um, we think a bit of preemptive strike might actually be a good yeah. idea as well. Absolutely, so, for the crowds and hordes to send. Yeah. Speaking of gift from nature, though, um, we also had another first this week. We found the second mermaid on the Medina. Now, um, there's two uh, allegedly. So, so fable has it that there are two mermaids on the Medina. Now, one is at the entrance of Cowes Harbour right. down by the Royal Yacht Squadron, yep. which you can only really get close to if you're a member or a guest of the Royal Yacht Squadron, which we're hardly likely to be. But we've always been interested in where the other one is, and it's vaguely near Newport Rowing Club's boathouse. Okay. And there is a is that, little... Is that on the west side? Yes, or the east side? On, the west, on the west bank. Yeah. And it's um, for those with a pet. There's a branch of pet doctors on the trading estate. Oh, I know it. Yes, which By has not a, a little a little car park. Yeah, uh, to the right as you stand and look at it. Yeah, I can it's not, Interestingly, also on the cycleway on the Red Squirrel cycleway between Cowes and Newport. So I'd seen it mm, some while ago, but we went and parked. We went and found the mermaid, and then we walked off towards Cowes and found. The factory that makes the um, wind turbine blades. Um, we found the cement kilns and generally walked down towards cows, which was really nice. And the, it was lined with fruit trees and bushes, Excellent. so good place to get blackberries. Good place we had. We had um, we had overnight oats with stewed apple the other morning for breakfast, and the apples were absolutely gorgeous. I've only ever done overnight oats once, and and it was nice. It was a little bit stodgy, I would have to say, a little bit kind of heavy, but you knew it was doing you good. So um, so I think if, if you get your mixture a bit looser, Rory, you'll find an improvement. Perhaps Jane can help you with your lubrication. <laughs> um, and also if you put top it and bottom it with fruit, that obviously, you know, just makes it a bit juicier. Yeah. So, um, 
really, really, really good. I recommend it. So everybody out there in podcast land, breakfast recipes, it's not all fry-ups, hardly any fry-ups. It's overnight oats. So I think what we should also do is geolocate on Instagram the position of the second mermaid so that we can allow Newport to compete with Copenhagen or Copenhagen. Yes. Um, There is a correct way of pronouncing that. There's a guy at the swimming in the morning who's actually Danish. He's been here for most of his life, I think since he was 11. Um, And I remember him correcting me. And I'm sure I said Copenhagen, thinking I was talking correctly to a Danish person. He said, no, 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 it's Copenhagen. But I already got it wrong there. So um, wonderful, wonderful Newport. My eldest son is a big fan of Copenhagen, he and his wife. And um, I, th- I believe it's quite an expensive place to visit, but he, 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 I'm sure, will know how correctly to pronounce it. So, Sam, over to you. Yeah, let us know. Let us know. Record us a snippet and we'll put it on Instagram for you. So that was a long conversation asking how you were. So uh, I'm glad it's all positive news. But what we've been up to, Jane and I, in particular, um, uh, today, in fact, we we spent a a lovely time in cows. And I want to give a shout out to two cows businesses that we seriously quite like. Um, Quite probably isn't even enough of an adjective to, to describe these two businesses. First, it's a new coffee shop we find. It's not, it's not new, it's new to us, which is a, a place on the high street called The Garden. And it's a very appealing looking coffee shop, contemporary grey paint job outside. Um, we've popped in there twice now for a quick coffee whilst being in cows. And they have the one of the best coffees um, we've had on the island. So a real, real good recommendation to get. I, I love a flat white. Jane's in cappuccino at the moment, and both of us really, really enjoyed uh, what we were given. They also give us a a little bit of, um, what's the Italian crunchy biscuit called? Biscotti. Biscotti. Uh, My teeth aren't up to that, so Jane really enjoys biscotti because she's got really good teeth. Um, Great fetlocks as well, but also very good teeth. Um, We uh, And they also have glasses of iced water. The little carafe, which again is very continental. And uh, when we went there this morning, we sat outside in their garden, literally a garden at the back of the cafe. And we felt like we were in some continental, cool, hip, you know, urban garden setting. Walled garden, lots of greenery, really cool, very chilled atmosphere, combination tables, um, lounge areas. Um, uh, I can just imagine how this will be at night, all lit up, you know, with patio warmers and, you know, subtle lighting. Great thing. So strong recommendation to go and visit the garden on, on Cows High Street. But they also have a pop-up summer garden, which is right on the seafront in Cows, uh, further up the high street, underneath the RNLI building. Uh, we, we've been there once, but back in June, I think it was, and um, we were going to have a quick bit of lunch there. They have a pizza business too so they they produce pizzas and we were in this pop-up having a pizza and a drink and you're right on the over the water on a kind of a pier jetty type thing with lovely seats again lounge areas um literally watching the boats come in and out of of cows harbour and uh it started raining but luckily they've got an undercover area literally under under the rnli building and it was just glorious so they, they were there during cows week selling and we, we walked past past them i've got a shout out for some a business in the cows area as well um, th- this is the legendary cows milk see oh. what we did there um crockers mm. yes Cro- indeed 
It's going to be one of those episodes, isn't it? Um, Crocker's Farm. So on the drive into Cows, I West Cows, yeah. um, I guess it's in nor- probably more in Northwood. But uh, on the left-hand side, they have, um, I think, one of only two automatic vending machines for milk on the island. They also sell farm eggs and a range of Isle of Wight cheeses and butters from a vending machine. Wow. But basically, you, you buy your glass bottle, litre bottle, you pay a deposit uh, for the bottle, and then you refill it as many times as you want to um, with a litre of um, milk. Now, it is pasteurised slight gently, but it's so it's not straight from the cow milk, but it, it has a decent head of old-fashioned cream on it. You can only buy essentially full-fat milk. So There's no skimming because um, that's a process that, beyond yeah, the day, isn't it? Yeah, so, so Ella particularly likes it for cereal, and so do I, um, but we... we, we tend not to have it for tea or, tea or coffee. Probably be better in coffee than tea. Yeah, sure. Um, it's a little bit creamy for our taste for tea. But it, it's excellent. So and supporting a local business and very much with recycling in mind. And the, the bottles just can go in the dishwasher or warm soapy water and you're good to go again. So we um, Great try and get over there once a week. We've now got two bottles so we can manage most of our you know, milk requirements. And as you go into West... Oh. As you go into West Cow, just for precision, is that on? You have that fork by the garage that takes. So it's just it's about mm, quarter of a mile before the fork. Okay, and it's on the left-hand side, yep. near opposite the showground. Understand? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just just past the place where you buy your logs from the dodgy log man. If one had a log burner, but you know. yes. One has decided not to go for a log burner, but I think you do have a log burner. So yeah. well, we inherited one. I, I just think just for those environmental activists out there who think that we're killing the environment as fast as we can, we kind of forgot about it when we between looking at the house and moving into the house. And when we got there, we um, were not surprised because we both knew at some subconscious level, but we um, inherited a state of the art log burner. So. We don't use it often, and it is cosmetic because the house is well insulated and perfectly warm enough, but it does add a certain, je ne sais quoi. Yeah, an ambience. Big yeah. shout out to uh, to Louise, my uh, daughter-in-law, um, who taught us how to start a log burner fire, having had many years of experience as a child, both up the mi- up the pits and down the mines, or the other way around, for her dad and lighting his fire in their home in um, Rugby. Hang on a minute, but time out. Surely an, a scout leader didn't need too much help getting a log burner fire going. So you think I should have been doing it in the lounge with a flint and an, an axe? And yeah, things? and rubbing two sticks together yeah. in the Baden-Powell, Baden Baden-Powell way. So, yes and no. So ours is... Relative, so ours is well designed and is relatively easy to light. Some that we've sub, see, we, we've often been on holiday to places that have had wood burners but have been too afraid to try and light them. But now that we have the proper approved speak technique, we um, go forward um, and we kind of say a little prayer of thank you to Louise and, and up it goes in flames. So yeah. if you ever want an arsonist, Louise is um, the one to talk to. This is the speak um, easy technique. In so many ways. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, um, the other shout out I wanted to make, I think our third shout out, before we perhaps introduce today's interview uh, guest in a moment, is the reason we were in Cows enjoying a coffee at the garden is we were there to pick up some 
purchases that we'd made during Cows Week from uh, a fantastic cows business that used to be a Ventnor based business that, you know, I, I know you know, Tim, a guy called Neil Williams Photography. And he produces wonderful large scale photographic prints and gets them framed up and, you know, largely of island scenes, but not exclusively, but also coastal scenes from around the UK and perhaps the world, um, inland scenes, particularly forestry settings and so on. So he's just a very avid photographer. He used to be London-based. And I've got friends who've got some of his work on their walls in their houses in London as well. We've had a particular print of his, which was uh, waves crashing on the railings on Ventnor Seafront for about 10 years, maybe, maybe less than that, five, 10 years. Um, uh, and we brought that with us. It's yet to be put on a wall because we've been doing this redecorating and re reworking some of the house here, but it's about to go on a wall in the next day or two. Um, Jane had fallen in love with two other prints um, over the years. And because we've got the house kind of ready to accept wall hangings, um, we decided to go for it. So um, one particular scene that, that Jane has coveted is a, a stormy scene looking east from Ventnor, actually looking west from Ventnor, with an easterly gale towards Steep Hill Cove. This is a black and white print <clears throat> where you can see the lighthouse um, uh, accommodation in Steep Hill Cove with one little chink of light coming through it in this wonderful black and white stormy sea setting. It looks absolutely glorious. And we got it in a dark wood frame, which will go up in our front room. And the other pieces of a piece of bark. Parker! Nothing to do with Parker. The barker. This is a piece of oak tree bark that Neil has photographed and blended together. So it's actually the complete circumference of the oak tree, but flattened out like a Mercator map projection of the world um, with gnarly bark, some green moss on it. And that's going to go in our green forest glade themed uh, bedroom. Uh, Very nice. As long as she's fallen for the photographs and not the photographer well i have to say uh um probably neil is in one of is one of jane's favorite men on the planet um i'm presuming it's primarily because he produces such wonderful products and, and vistas um but uh he's probably certainly in her top five and I'm, i hope i'm still number one um always. Ooh, i've just heard the most outrageous screech of tires perhaps that's jane doing a massive u-turn <laughs> Perhaps he's in his convertible and just heading off down to the hut. I'm not sure if that screech of tyres will have made it to the recording. If it doesn't, I will add a sound effect for effect. But uh, very good. Needless to say, Jane's very excited about these these purchases, which are currently bubble wrapped in the hall and about to to find the appropriate position in due course. So very excited about that. But again, shout out to Neil. Great products, great photography, great photography. And if you just want to browse some wonderful artworks go into his gallery on the high street in cows it's uh, a few minutes that you won't you won't miss <laughs> so tim i think it's time to introduce this week's guest or this fortnight's guest to be more correct um uh, you've been talking to Victoria White, the wonderfully named Victoria White, who is, I believe, head of the ambulance service here on the Isle of Wight, part of the Isle of Wight NHS Trust. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, we're ever so grateful to Victoria for her time, as we say to all of our guests, but probably hers uh, slightly more than most of the others, given the criticality of, of what she and her team do. Um, 
I came across her through, I think it was our episode 11, um, which we talked about, you know, my medical um, situation. And it just happens that my wife provides care to her mum. And through that contact, uh, Victoria happened to listen to the podcast. And she came back and made some interesting comments, which we talk about in the podcast, so I won't spoil it, but about how the um, service is changing and modernising and how the use of some things close to your heart, sort of data and technology, are going to be used in the future to hopefully make, um, you know, the provision of healthcare better for people like like me and others in in, in the future. So, well, I think I think um, you had that particularly faultless experience when it comes to the ambulance service. Uh, in- so, so they covered themselves in considerable glory. I, my comment was about the number of connections to different systems, which is totally outside of their control. But. As you're here, we um we we talk a little bit about that. So, without further ado, I think we should go straight in. I'm going to go with introducing Tim, uh, our roving reporter, talking to Victoria White of White. So, welcome, podcasters, to quite like episode 14. I'm here at St Mary's Hospital in Newport, and I'm very privileged to have with me Victoria White, who's the um, head of the ambulance service for the Isle of Wight. Um, she's spared us some time just to have a, have a little chat about her career and also about the service on the island and perhaps how it's changing going forward. So, Victoria, thank you so much for your time. Not at all, Tim. Pleasure to be talking to you. In your premises here. So we've passed through several levels of security. It's a bit like back in my National Grid days when you tried to get into the control room and your pass wouldn't let you in. So, Victoria, I mean, perhaps just set the scene for us. Perhaps give us a little thumbnail sketch of your career. I know, I think you went to university in Southampton. Yeah, I went to um, university in Portsmouth. <gasps> dread, dread enemies of Southampton. Oh, no. oh dear, my son will pull me up on that one. I know. So um, I have been in the NHS, working in the NHS since I was just out of university. Um, so my career in the NHS has been. Mm-hmm. 28-ish years, I want to say. Um, But I started out my career as a radiographer. Um, So I went to university and did three years doing a BSc in radiography and then um, worked clinically for nearly 12 years. And in that time, I worked in an X-ray department. Um, I specialised in neuroradiography. Um, so came to Southampton to work in um, in the neurological centre there and then ended up running something called an interventional radiology department. Now, Tim, you'll know a little bit about that because you ended up in a cardiac catheter lab. I did. Um, and I'm sure your listeners have heard your, heard your story. And interventional radiology is the same lab and they do all of the same procedures around different parts of the body, just not the heart. Um, so if people have blockages in their legs um, that we can stent, we can put balloons down the arteries in the um, leg and you can um, open up the blood supply. You can do that in the arm, you can do that in the neck um, and a whole range of things. And I ran the equivalent of a lab there and then I went to the dark side of management. 
Was that something that, that that's that's such an interesting comment? We could probably spend the rest of the afternoon on that. that was was that always the ambition, or was that just that you, you were ambitious and wanted to move upwards? Or yeah, I think I wanted. I think when I first started, I want my career ambition was to be able to work in a, um, a, a run a CT scanner. And um, I never really knew, and I think a lot of people that work clinically don't know what goes on beyond being for radiography, it was superintendent for a um, nursing, it will be the ward sister or the matron. You don't really know what goes on behind that. So for me, um, I, I was running this service and I got an opportunity to become an, what they call an operational manager. And basically they'd just introduced waiting times targets in x-ray departments or, or diagnostics uh, six weeks you know no patient should wait longer than six weeks for their ct scan or their mri scan and they had never measured anything in that way we are going back you know 15 20 years so i um had an opportunity to run that project and introduce it um and i think at that point um it's like anything. If a job comes up somewhere that's a promotion, you think to yourself, oh, and a job came up for me down at Limington Hospital to run the radiology service. And so then it became, oh, actually, I could run the CT, the MRI, the X-ray, the DEXA, I could run it all. So I took that opportunity. I think we often think of the dark side when people are drafted in from the outside with supposed business skills. Yours is a story of uh, if it was in the army, you were up through the ranks. So I I think that the staff look on you in a very different way if they know that you were standing there previously and and doing the things that they do and actually probably could or the technology moves on but you could actually step in and do it and having yeah having a a clinical background so I I ended I spent seven years at, at Lymington and I started off managing the radiology service and we introduced an MR service down there um, and then somebody left and they wanted a, someone to help run the theatres and the endoscopy and said, could you do that? So you just happened to be in the right place kind of at the right time. Um, and after seven years, I ended up being the hospital manager at Lymington. So do you, do you think, you, you, I mean, your skills clearly were developed in radiology, but do you think you always had leadership? potential do you think that does, is that what excites you so when I used to talk to students and I used to say um and I used to teach third year students at um Portsmouth University about the um sort of career advice and um interview skills and things like that and I used to say just because you you know you know I did have a 12-year career in radiology radiography I feel that that taxpayers money you know and my parents money um, you know, putting you through university um, was well spent. Um, but actually, the skills that you have become very transferable. And um, to, to have evolved my leadership skills and now be working, and I've worked six, nearly seven years now here on the island in the ambulance service, um, if I need to, to write a business case for an additional theatre or an additional x-ray room, or an additional ambulance station, I've got those transferable skills. I've worked clinically in trauma environments, um, 
and par- you know paramedics work very differently because they're not they're working pre-hospitally and it's a very very different working environment but I'm an allied health professional and they're allied health professionals and I think you know you have a, a an under an understanding and you can um work empathetically with staff to understand um what they do I've um since I've come here I mean I've made sure that I'm uh, I I can work as a staff responder, um, so I can go out in a car and attend a cardiac arrest. We have volunteers that do that, and I've been trained in the same way that we would train some of our volunteers in enhanced life support. So I would never want my staff to think I wouldn't be prepared to do something that they wouldn't do either. And I think you know, that's where the through the ranks makes you a better manager because you are quite happy to embrace that and can do that and everybody can see that so they're far more likely to follow somebody than someone who's coming from a non-health career outside so have you ever been tempted outside of the health service it's weirdly you mentioned about the um you mentioned about the military beforehand and I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who was coming out of the military and he was saying um, it felt really strange. He'd had a career for 25 years in the Navy and he said, I feel almost institutionalised um, and it's going to be really strange to be out of the military environment. And I thought, Do you know, I've worked in the NHS since I was 20. Um, I'm not going to say how old I am, but I've been in the NHS quite a long time. 25? <laughs> yeah, 25 yeah. again. And and um and it's weird i've i never i've never wanted to explore out of the nhs because i loved working with patients and i loved that contact and the reason i went into a more of a managerial yes it was a promotion but i wanted to still be able to affect patient care um and you know you get greater influence if you're in a more um, managerial type role so i I never considered it. Friends of mine have, and they went into almost like the um, medical devices or some of the industry side of things behind um, healthcare. So all the, you know, there's lots of companies that make all the products and you can end up in that industry side. It never appealed. And I think I've become institutionalised, Tim, because I don't know what else I would do. Um, but I, yeah, I'm NHS through and through. But I actually think that your skill sets would be transferable to most big companies mm-hmm. because actually it's about managing people. It's about managing mm-hmm. systems and having the sort of brain that can logically prioritise and so forth. And those things. And the reason, the reason I ask is because sometimes people get tempted because the salaries if you go and do those things in a bank or you know can be phenomenal but yeah. you're clearly doing something something no, that you I've love. always loved it so changing tack just slightly mm. so we've heard about Portsmouth Southampton Livington and back to Portsmouth uh, where's the island connection so the island connection came so my mother-in-law lived on the island okay. and um and she um had was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and I was working in Southampton at the time, and my husband and I made the decision. We lived in the new, just outside of the New Forest, and we made the decision that we didn't want to bring her out of an environment that she knew and she was familiar with. Um, because although she had Alzheimer's, it wasn't. She was living on her own. She was living independently, yep. um, but everything's familiar. She was in a routine. We didn't want to pull her out of that, so we made the decision that we would move here rather than try and pull her out to us so I commuted for a couple of years to Southampton 
um, and um, but was looking for roles on the island um, in the meantime. And I was fortunate that a role came up and I was successful. And my role initially was a hybrid role in a managerial position that included the ambulance, but it included some other services. And I started working on April the 1st, um, and it wasn't an April Fool's, thankfully, um, but April the 1st, 2017, was the first day that the island went into special measures with the CQC inspection that they received. So I, um, I literally started on day one, and, um, and I don't know if your listeners know the kind of like the history that's taken place on the island with the healthcare, but since 2017, obviously they've been on a journey of improvement, a journey of quality improvement, um, and um, you know, and well, a number of things have been happening. But one of the at the start, the, the chief executive that came at the time rejigged all of the services to um, concentrate people within areas, so ambulance, mental health, community, hospital. So my remit, which covered some community services, ambulance and a bit of the front door in the hospital, um, I was asked whether I would just work 100% of my time in ambulance. And um, and I'd, I was quite thrilled, actually, because it felt like it was a shift in an, an, an NHS um, career, almost, because an ambulance service is... You know, it has its own structure, it has its own ways of working. I do think if you stick with one organisation, which I did largely for most of my career, the opportunities sort of open up in a different way from somebody looking from the outside because you grow organically and you you realise that the skills that you've inherited are building towards things. And There's a teensy bit of fate in these things as well, I suspect. It's interesting that you said the 1st of April because I started work on the 1st of April 1982. Um, So (laughs) the other thing that I thought was interesting is you talked about special measures and in a way as a manager the best time to come in is at a, is a low point so if you start with a low benchmark it's possible to build improvement yeah. and you know incrementally move, move on that I, I I spent some time as a school governor and I took over as chair just after the school went into special measures and whilst it felt like a curse at the time it was easy then to show, to show an improvement curve so and did you did you find with that that actually it took every ounce of all your previous skills and knowledge that you'd built up to support that turnaround i I think we were very lucky because once you go into special measures, you get a, rather than just dealing with Ofsted, you get a Her Majesty's Inspector of Education, so a quantum different level of individual to help you improve. I got on, had a very strong relationship with the head, so... That kind of triangle, I, th- I think, was very, was very powerful. And the head, I think, was able to, he was, was relatively new, and we came up with a plan which we stuck to, obviously flexibly, but we stuck to the plan, and it seemed to, it seemed to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't overcomplicate, yeah. but, you know, just trying to get the basics right. The staff were... I, th- I think they'd had, they'd had an acting deputy for a very long time and once the post was filled with a leader who had a clear strategic direction that he could sell to staff, um, you know, the belief built and there was plenty of skills there and um, there, was, there was many good things about the school to build on and um, he went forward and the school's continued again. He's now sort of on the cusp of good to outstanding, which is where it, where it should be, yeah. which is wonderful. 
And I think that's um, when I think back on the journey of the ambulance service, because I didn't have a history to what it was before. Um, there had been, obviously, I had the CQC report. Um, that was 2017. A number of staff who were quite senior staff in the organisation had left in the year or the two years beforehand. Um, so you, you didn't have them to speak to, um, to, you know, to determine the rights and the wrongs or what everything that had gone on. The current head of ambulance service was still in post. He was, he was, um, we had a period of about six months. So I was head of operations and he was head of service. And we had a six month period before he retired. And that was really helpful. Um, but when I look and think, how the service has grown since 2017 to 2023 I mean, it's six years and it's just it's almost unrecognizable now to think where we were and where we are now um if you if you had your plan from 2017 i mean how how does it look in comparison with that you know did you think there are some things that i want to do here and have you achieved those i think there's things we wanted to do and it's always been um a we it's definitely not been a me um there's things we wanted to do and i think we've done that and i think we've done more I think it's probably surpassed what I thought and that's down to the staff that work in this ambulance service they have a passion um, because it's an you know, it's an island ambulance service they are proud to work here um, and um, they they want to deliver they they deliver such fab they do deliver fabulous care um, and I think what frustrates a lot of people when you work clinically, and I've been there, is that you sometimes feel failed by other people that are around you, either because they're not listening or they're not delivering on the what you need um, to do your job properly. And so that's the thing that will really frustrate staff. And we've had conversations, haven't we, about IT systems and everything works independently and why doesn't it integrate and I think for staff working clinically they get really frustrated with that kind of stuff so I think you know there were there weren't regularly 10 ambulance uh, ambulances working we would have six on during the day four on during the night um, and sometimes not always that um, and when we've got 16 now um, and three cars, a mental health car, critical care car, urgent care car. Um, and those are specialists. Those are staff that have gone to university. They, they, they were already paramedics. They've done extra training. They've gone to university. They've got additional skills. And they're bringing that and they're bringing that back onto the island. And I think that aspect of it, I wouldn't even have thought we would have you know, grown and done that and got funding. That was one of the most impressive things, I think, in my experience, was that at just about every stage of the process, there was someone on their training journey who was part of the team, the care team in all the handoff points. So it didn't yeah. happen just once. It happened in every instance. And from there being a trainee who helped strap me onto the hovercraft to one at the Portsmouth side, who, and all of them were at studying at university most of them were in their final year i think and yeah. i mean most comically the the two who manage the overnight service on either saturday or sunday 
one of them who was, I think, Malaysian background, finished his shift at eight o'clock and his um, final exam was at 10 o'clock that day. That's a bit harsh. Well, I wanted to say, you know, give me my pills early, go and have a shower and a sleep. Yeah. And, but the, the, so the, the dedication but the, and, and the training path was just very evident. And even in the cath lab, the consultant was there, but he had the trainee doctor doing most of the work. So he said, right, what's your analysis? So the student said... I think this is what we need to do. And he actually did it. Yeah, now the consultant was standing with his hand on his shoulder, which is good from the patient's point of view. And when I thought I was going to pass out, he yeah. explained what was happening. And because they were dissolving the clot and the, you know, so my blood pressure did that. And, and he's, it, the, he's the consultant of tomorrow. So if he doesn't get it, abs- absolutely, it's, it's the same all the way through. So my background is in recruitment and of running graduate programs for, for National Grid and uh, developing the students once they joined us. So for me, it was absolutely brilliant to see that kind of involvement and actively building for the future. So really I think one of the challenges on the island, and it won't just be the ambulance service, it will probably be not just healthcare, I'm sure it will be across a number of sectors, is that sometimes you can't always recruit into the positions. And um, and if you don't start looking at how you're going to invest in your staff to take them on an educational journey, um, then you can't always rely on bringing, for us, qualified paramedics in from St. Elsewhere. Um, so what we've tried to do, or what we have done, because I had four paramedics who graduated this year um, who had gone through an apprenticeship. So they had been working as an emergency care assistant. So on the ambulance, you'll have a qualified paramedic and you'll have an an emergency care assistant. They make up the crew. The emergency care assistant drives on blue lights, does the driving, um, supports the paramedic, but the clinician in the back of the ambulance would have been the paramedic. So our emergency care assistants have been going through a foundation degree and an apprenticeship, and it's taken four years, but they're working, studying, and then they've got their degree in paramedic science. They're now newly qualified paramedics, but they live on the island, they work on the island, they've got their families on the island. So we know investing that time and education then is going to come back we're going to reap the rewards because we have four vacancies they're going to fill those vacancies that was going to be my next question about retention but you've kind of preempted it and almost solved the problem i mean you're always going to lose people onwards and upwards because because that's how the world should be but by recruiting local people and training them and investing in them you know that you've got the best possible chance so so what would you say is what's the single biggest challenge in the role I think um, <laughs> funding has been a challenge, and that's always a really thorny issue. I think for the island, um, we are, unlike the other islands, like Isle of Man, Guernsey, Jersey, they've got different governments. I, obviously, the Isle of Wight, we sit under England, English government, and we're funded by NHS England. And um, there are 10 English ambulance trusts, big trusts, all across the country, Northwest, Southwest Ambulance, London Ambulance, 10 Ambulance Trusts. But there's 11 English Ambulance Services and the Isle of Wight is the 11th. Um, So historically, um, I think the island has potentially has been 
can be missed with funding. Um, and what we have done or what I've done ever since I've been in post is been flying that flying that flag and making sure that if funding is coming centrally, that we work with our commissioners to make sure that we still get that across and into the ambulance service. And that's what's sure. fun. So it's been the, that has been a challenge, but I think we we're addressing it. Um, and that makes us sustainable. It makes us um, resilient. I think um, for a for an ambulance service where you need to get people, like when you had your cardiac event, you have to get to Portsmouth. We need to get you to Portsmouth, and we need to do it quickly. Obviously, um, pr- prior to having the hover, um, you we would either look at helicopter or we might look at um, land ferry but a land ferry takes a long time that stretch of water is always going to pose a challenge on getting people to the right place so that's been a challenge and developing the hover developing our relationships with the RNLI we just we're strengthening as many relationships so that we don't ever just have one choice and people think sometimes the helicopter is the quickest it's not a hover is quicker than the helicopter that hovercraft takes 10 minutes we can get you there in 15 minutes we can get you over in 10 minutes we can get you up to qa in another you know 15 minutes it takes 20 minutes to and get that was the my experience in. well also you know where do you land it where do you land at the other you know it, it's compl- much more complicated yeah. but, but it's there and it's there and it's the helicopter is a lifeline at times when we need it Hovercraft was, was was a fascinating experience because the passenger one arrived just as they were wheeling me across the pad. So I, I sort of gave a little wave. He was still still alive. My favourite bit though was being strapped into the life raft. So when they oh. get the, the thing in the gurney, they actually yes. have to put you on it. And I had this vision of the hovercraft sinking and me being left float floating mid mid cardiac. Incident. So you'll be really pleased that we did a fantastic, we did a really good exercise about a month ago where we actually, um, the hovercraft um, pretended that they'd broken down mid-Solent yes. with a patient who oh transferred for cardiac. And we tested two different ways to work out what was quicker. The first one called Coast Guard because it's now a maritime issue you're yes. in the middle of the yeah, salient yeah. and you need to get this patient off so we called the coast guard it was an exercise and then had to work out how you got the patient across safely and then up safely and then we also tested the all weather rnli so there are two all weather rnli boats one at embridge yes and one at um yarmouth yarmouth so we tested that to come alongside and do the same thing and um and it's brilliant to be able to do that kind of exercising because we take so many patients now across daily on the hover it's a fascinating insight you kind of think it could break down and if it did we need to know that everyone knows exactly what you're going to do how you're going to do it and what's the best safest quickest we could go into your risk management policy and index but we probably haven't got time time. um I'm conscious of time and I know that you have to get on to other things. So one of the things you, you said that you're particularly keen to talk about was some of the ways that the service is changing going forward. Mm. So I mean, are there, are there any things that spring to mind about you know what, how it's going to be better in the future, I guess, is what people may want to hear about. Yeah, I think um, from an ambulance service perspective, um, we're conscious that we... Um, 
we don't want to sit here on the island and just um, rest on our laurels. We always need to be looking forward as to what we can do better. Um, and I'm sure you know there'll be listeners who will be listening to me and thinking, well, I didn't have a good experience. We want to, you know, we do want to hear from people when they don't. We want to know and understand why and how we can get and improve things. We think on the island, you know, we're we're a great test bed opportunity. So one of the things I'm really keen to do, and we're working with NHS England and the Trust, um, is to move the island to a green fleet. Um, and you know, there's a challenge for everyone to get to net zero. Um, but if we could test bed having the electric ambulances on the island um, that would be a fantastic way to reduce our carbon um, footprint um, but actually we're a perfect place because just because your distances are yeah. manageable what a great um, idea so that's absolutely something that we're looking um, to deliver the multi-agency training and exercising um, we want to continue with that Covid stopped a lot of that kind of thing happening but actually the more we work really closely with fire, police, coast guard um, and um, build up the confidence for everybody working in small incidents so that if any time something bigger happened that everything works slickly we want to do a lot more of that um, our critical care service that's in a new it's it's a newly developed um area of the service um and we're keen to um to to what's the word i'm looking for um develop that further um so we've trained um a small group of clinicians paramedics to do more outside of what would have been their usual scope of practice all under train you know modules training education and um you know that in itself um will provide so these are the kind of skills that the the helicopter the hems the um air ambulance bring in so when they come and fly in on the island they will come with a critical care doctor a critical care paramedic um but we've talked it takes a while so what we've developed is our own staff who can get out there and provide that doesn't mean we still won't bring the helicopter in as and when we need the support um but it's strengthening our own resilience to do more that will provide better outcomes for I, our patients i love that focus of looking at what other people are doing really well and in an innovative way mm. and then replicating it with your own local spin on it because you say the island has gives you unique opportunities to do that so it's own um sort of microorganism almost uh, you know being with a stretch stretch of water you also mentioned the it systems changing a little bit and yes. how data can be yeah, essentially so, be shared so when when you were talking about your your journey so we've recently, um, during COVID, replaced all of our defibrillators. Um, so we've got some really cutting edge technology and we're working with the catheter labs at Portsmouth and Southampton um, so that we can electronically transmit the ECG from the roadside. Um, and then what you have is your specialists, cardiologists and the specialist nursing teams, the clinicians in either of those um, sites that can view the images um and so remote triage sort of thing yes. so that you can be ready or direct to where there's capacity and expertise and so forth in yeah. each individual case and, you know it's looking at where you can take out the middleman sometimes yes. because actually what you then would do is um have that agreement and then decision to go from scene from home um without 
going into St Mary's first. So we're, st we're starting to look at the pathways, not just cardiology, but the different pathways where um, it makes far more clinical sense to be able to work with that. It's it's without upsetting people where people are thinking but I should be going into St Mary's quite clearly for you if you, you came into St Mary's but you couldn't get the treatment you needed um, we don't have a cardiac catheter lab here so we need to get you to Portsmouth and I'm talking those kinds of cases um, when people need to come to St Mary's we'll absolutely bring them into St Mary's um, but if you um, if we can get people quicker using the technology and get the decision making and the agreement and then just go that's what we would be as you say to cutting deliver. out the middleman really mm. That's absolutely fabulous. Now, I'm conscious that you have a load of other stuff to go and do, so I think we should be winding up. I think perhaps two questions, final ones. So how can the people of the island, perhaps they're volunteering, I don't know, but how can they help? What what can we do? What could I do, you know, just as a, as a citizen? To, to You know, we've, we talked a little bit about evangelising the service and so forth, and that's, that's okay, and if people change their behaviours, that's great. But, you know, what, what actually practically can people do? I think um, learning CPR, we had a we did a pledge within um, so um, resuscitation, cardiac resuscitation, that we would get out as an ambulance service and do as much training um, in schools, and we're trying to do that so every school child comes and knows what they need to do. But I think every adult should know how what how to, um, where's their nearest defib? <laughs> um, what would I do in the first you know, instances if, uh, if someone went into uh, an arrest um, and not be scared to try? Because for the person that's on the floor, it's better that you try than you don't try. Oh, it's some chance versus no chance, yeah. isn't it? So speaking personally, having a very strong vested interest, I can't agree more. So, you know, message there for all of you listeners. Do you know where your nearest defibrillator is? Do you know how to use it? And would you have a go? Some challenges for you there. Mm -hmm. Any, anything else that um, people, people could do? I mean, for those who are interested, I mean, we do have volunteers in our service um, and we regularly, you know, we advertise and we train people, um, whether that be as volunteer drivers or volunteer um, community first responders. So they enhance first aid training and it's about living locally um, and then the volunteers log on and if there was an, an event normally cardiac in that area there they live locally so it might be two streets down you know so they'll always get there quicker even than an ambulance flying on blue lights um so if people are if people are interested in that kind of thing we obviously take on volunteers but i think the general public just learning and not being scared about CPR so learning CPR would be one of the biggest things and um, teaching your child what to do um, does your child know your first name um, if you have young children obviously um, if your child if you have your parent with very young children and something happened to you you fell down the stairs would your child know to ring 999 does your child know where you live does your child know what your first name is so that they can say to a call handler you know, mummy's had a problem. I'm very practical things. And I, I've seen this in things like scouts and brownies, for example, that they tend to do this for their badges. And I guess, guess getting that message into schools shouldn't be too difficult. 
That is absolutely fabulous. So last one, what next for you? What next for me? Keep working with my teams in the ambulance service, working with my colleagues across the um, St Mary's Hospital in the ED um, and yeah, keep doing what we're doing and learning, getting better, listening, improving. I think from the people, just on behalf of the people of the Isle of Wight, we should say a big thank you to Victoria for doing that and to her staff because, you know, you're saving lives every day and you know, I'm sure you get lots of positive feedback. But for me and, you know, all the other people that you've helped, a big thank you. It's important that it goes back into the troops because, you know, people in the modern world are often quick enough to complain and you've got to be quick to speak up and say the positive stuff. So thank you for your time. So, as you know, I'm always self-critical of what I've done rather than listening to the performance of the person we're interested in. But hang on a minute, you're Scoop Deadman, I remember. <laughs> Victoria has you know, so much, so much to tell us, a wealth of experience, and and just a lovely person. Um, it was, so it was interesting to hear that bit about her career, and also to actually visit the kind of the hub of the organisation, which um, I probably wouldn't have done in any other circumstances. So big thanks to her. Also a little shout out to Ella for kind of seeing the opportunity and putting it together and making the initial contact, which mm-hmm. she's really good at. So big up for, for Ella. Incidentally, she's also um, been instrumental in setting up our next interview, which I'm not going to give away, but um, she's she has actually been following this person on social media, desperately pursuing them around the island, and okay. um, was key in getting explaining to me why it would be a really good interview. So there's a little teaser for everybody. Excellent, excellent, good stuff, good stuff. Well, again, thanks to to, to you both, and thanks, Victoria. Um, subject close to all of our hearts. Pardon, yeah, mine thing. in particular. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I'm glad you saw that one coming. <laughs> We'll be right back after this quick break. So another mammoth episode of Quite Like a Podcast draws inexorably to a close. Um, uh, things we should say before we go, Tim, you know, lots of activity happening on the on the island, this great Diamond Isle of ours. As always, and perhaps that's why we have so much to talk about, because we never struggle for content, because we know we can always come back to island life, of of which there's such a a variety. And we are part of island life. Our lives are inexorably woven into island life. And, you know, we talked earlier about coffee shops and we've talked before about breakfasts that we can have, beaches we walk on, um, photographs we can buy to adorn our house walls etc there's there's something for everyone in the isle of wight and there's something for everyone in quite like a podcast i hope too do you think that accounts for our number two status in the island podcast rankings Uh, i think tim number two is slightly less ambitious than you should be Uh, i think bearing in mind that harriet and her island stories podcast harriet of course was our special guest your special guest in episode 13 last time out on quite like a podcast uh, has the we believe the dominant position as number one isle of white podcast she's on a summer sabbatical so i believe 
we must be the number one podcast on Isle of Wight through the months of July and August, at least until the schools return when Harriet Harriet picks up her microphone again. So what we should do is, I think the county press, you know, like in the olden days, you'd have the chart and the singles chart and the album chart. I think they need a podcast feature in the local paper you know, where they, they, could, they could review, you know, the new entrants and yeah. chart how many weeks these things have been going for. Yeah. And, you know, we could have kind of coloured graphics on listenership and stuff like that, not pulling too much on the numbers. I, I think that would be really good. I, I'm already hearing in the back of my head the top of the pops chart rundown music um which i think was it a thin lizzie backing track uh, um no is it isn't it a bit of isn't it from isn't it led zeppelin coming in at position five this week in the isle of white podcast chart is and rory do led zeppelin <laughs> not very well I can just about do the opening chords of Stairway to Heaven um, badly, but uh, then it runs out of steam very, very quickly. But talking about musical events, there's there's some great activity coming up this weekend on the island. Um, I believe you are planning to attend with family one of the island's major attractions throughout the, the, the annual calendar, which is the, the Garlic Festival at uh, Ariton. Yes, um, we've been over our many years of visiting the island a few times and always had a terrific time. It's the same old recipe for success, which is sort of craft and hobby and food tents where local manufacturers um, get together to sell their wares and showcase their wares. Local businesses um, usually are there selling stuff as well. Um, There's a music stage, great food opportunities and at the center of it all a massive marquee marketing the garlic farms products and they and i think red funnel are the principal sort of sponsors of the event and there's a fun fair there's children's farm type activities and it's it's a lot of fun saturday and sunday always a cracking day out particularly if it's great weather then you know sit on the straw bales drinking a, a beer listening to the music you know, going off for a garlic ice cream, perhaps enjoying a garlic uh, infused lager, perhaps washed washing down a particular favourite of mine is the Isle of Wight sweet corn basted in garlic butter, you know, fresh island garlic butter. Absolutely. And then going, going home with your um, Isle of Wight garlic toothpaste to clean your teeth. <laughs> No, I, I tend to, uh, I don't think I'll be attending the Garlic Festival this year, although I'll be supporting from afar. The reason being um, Jane, Mrs. Forbes, um, I think has some Transylvanian genes um, because she's absolutely detests and loathes garlic uh, with every ounce of passion in her body. Um, and secondly, she has a childhood trauma caused aversion to fates or anything resembling a fate. Um, her, her mother was a, a, a leading light in her local church and flower arranging, and Jane was in the choir and so on. So Jane got dragged along to jumble sales, summer fates, Christmas fates, and had to endure the whole experience because her mum was part of the whole experience, part of organising it all. So now she has a, has, has a kind of negative reaction to all of that. So the Garlic Festival is just everything that Jane would... <laughs> Would traumatize Jane. So, if I ever go, I go on my own. But I think I prefer the Transylvanian analogy, personally. Actually, <laughs> uh, 
don't mean it, Jane, honestly. Well, Roy, you, you're, you're welcome to come along with us if you if you so wish, but That's I'm sure okay, you've got you. better things. So I think also there is the um, Steam Fair at Ooh. the end of the month, which yes. is one we should get a mention. Haven't been to that for a few years, but that used to be an absolute favourite of ours. Uh, this is at the um, Haven Street at the Steam Railway. And which, of course, is worth a visit on any anyway, given day it because is. it's just a fantastic day out. Steam trains, um, you know, what well, do steam cranes chug, chug up and down the line? Um, uh, it's not a word a, that I think aficionados like to be heard. I mean, chuff would possibly be acceptable, but chug, yeah, chug, no. chug has drinking connotations, of course. Yes, so um, steam up and down the line is how we'll, yes. we'll finish that one. But there's a wonderful kind of interactive museum. Uh, exhibition where you can get on carriages and you know, walk around locomotives and so on in the big sheds at the uh, at the new park. And it's just a great experience. Lots of places to walk, good food on offer. And particularly when they add an extra dimension like the Highland Gathering they've done, there's a falconry display team tend to be based there. So that can run throughout the event weekend as well. They are at the Garlic Festival, the falconry Excellent. team, I believe. Excellent. Right, good. I think but, actually we did do a little outside broadcast from the beer festival at did. the Steam Railway. So that's right. Um, not wholly. wholly and, and I think we, we, we did some, some pieces or um, what, what do the broadcast journalists call it? Uh, 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 that word will come to mind. We did some items that were actually on a carriage, steaming. We not, did. Not we chugging, did. steaming through the uh, Isle of Wight countryside. So. Interestingly, one of the f- only two refusals I've had for interview came from someone at the Steam Railway. Um, there was a man with a traction engine who was there running the engine as a feature for a wedding. And... It was an old Hunslet engine from 1901 or whatever, and I just thought he would be fascinating. So I went up and chatted, and we, we, we chatted. I think I bought him an ice cream, and I, I asked him if he would like to do it, just a, a quick thing about the, the traction engine and his involvement. And he just looked at me and said no. Oh. So um, No no equivocation at all? Just a straight, no, no. Absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, anything to do with the press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Off you go. Yeah. The other one was my Polish friend in Sandown, but that's another oh, story. Oh, yes, the the um the smoker, the meat smoker. Yes, indeed. Yes. Well, you probably just have to talk about him in future rather than have him talk about him. He, his business has been out and about at a lot of these events that we we're talking about. I'm sure he'll be at the Garlic Festival, and he was recently at Sandown Regatta, and he said it was the most successful. Um, event he's yet been oh, to, and he pretty much sold out. So good, good. Um, he was he was delighted. This was obviously a regatta that d- didn't fall foul to the weather. No, I think it was one day last week, and um, he the, he had had the good day, I believe. Yeah, I think also um, Jane and I did attend the Ventnor Carnival procession um, and fireworks display on August the ninth. Um, also, my birthday. I like to think that they arranged the procession and the fireworks just because it was my birthday i fear it was entirely coincidental but it was a a, a great evening uh a, a well and well attended event lots of bands there was three marching bands two samba bands um very Martin impressive in a pear tree uh, <laughs> partridge in a pear tree yes More so, karaoke. really really good uh event so again we quite like the island because i'm you know, give so much to us to to experience and and do. So 
you know. I think it does. And one of the things that we haven't talked about, this is the last thing from me, um, is the Ventnor Fringe. And we would like to cover that in more detail, but we'll save that up and do it justice with perhaps a yeah. podcast of its own in due course. Yeah, now, lot, before we finish. Sorry, what was Go on, you first. No, after me, <laughs> a lot yeah. of things in in planning and production for for future kind of quite like uh, activities, including uh, you know a stronger events diary, um, so that we can give you advance notice of stuff that's coming up and give you our previous experiences, recommendations of things to do around those events. So yeah, keep listening and watch out for that. Yes, getting getting ahead of events knows is absolutely right. So, yeah, the question occurred to me this morning, and um, I'd be interested to hear your opinion. So next Sunday, there's going to be a little sporting event going on down under in Australia um, when England um, take on uh, on, uh, Spain. Spain, Spain, yeah. Spain in the World Cup um, final. And I just wondered where your um, allegiances were going to lie. Just for you listeners, Roy's gone very quiet and he's gazing speculatively out of the window at the Solent. Is that the time? Any, I don't know if there's any pigs flying past the window. I, I, I've got to answer truthfully. Um, I'm going to answer, I have two answers to this question. The first answer is always anyone but England and, and genuinely, passionately, anyone but England. Uh, and that's just deep-rooted. That is, I almost can't not say that. Um, I always look for the football kits tops of any English opponents in major matches and provocatively post those on social media um, when I remember to. Um, But uh, most importantly, my genuine answer is I'm so delighted that, and I was listening to Sheila Fogarty on LBC at lunchtime today talking passionately about how when you let people do something that they want to do that they've previously not been allowed to do by the patriarchy, the establishment, you know, hundreds of years or a hundred years of, of thou shalt not play football, when suddenly they're arguably doing better than the men in international competition, I want them to win. I want them to win for all the women in our lives to show that you should not be precluded from doing something you want to do so i put that ahead of my anyone but england so there's my answer i want them to win i want england to win i suppose in answering the way i've just answered i don't mind if spain win either because it'll be spanish women that win but uh i want the english women to win to show the english patriarchy that there's a better way forward there you go and there listeners you had a historic moment i've only got one thing to say and that's come on you lionesses so without further ado it's goodbye from me it's coming home. It's coming. Goodbye from <laughs> Till next time, podcasters. Stay safe. We'll see you then. See you then. Bye-bye. That was Quite Like, a podcast presented by Rory Forbes and Tim Devon.